morning, church. Let's, uh, let's bow and pray. Father, we come before you and we are humbled by how faithfully you shepherd us. We're humbled by the mercy of Christ and the, the truths we just sang. And just thank you for how you pursue your people. We rejoice now over, over TJ and what you have appeared to be working in his life. And uh, we just give you tremendous thanks for how you have, have pursued him and are working in his life. Thank you for the opportunity to receive him back into our membership with love and kindness and just demonstrate your great mercy. And Lord, as we uh, turn our attention to your word, I pray that your spirit would be pleased to continue to illumine our hearts and encourage us and convict us and spur us on to that great maturity that you've called us to. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, it is uh, great to be back with you tonight and Picking back up in our study on Christian maturity, or as we're calling it, growing up. Learning how God matures us in the image of his son, and it has been a joy uh, just to be working through this together with you guys, have the opportunity to, to take you through this. Um, I'm grateful to hear how the Lord is working in your hearts, in your lives as you have, have chatted with me at different points, um, how this has been an encouragement to you, and these are familiar principles, familiar texts that we're looking at, and uh, just a joy to be working, working with you through this. And uh, for some of you, some of you are newer to the faith, uh, you've told me about that, and some of these truths that you're hearing in Romans and in the synthesis is just revolutionizing your life, and uh, we just praise God for that. And uh, even for those of you who've been here for a while, uh, it's, a, it's another kind of joy to see these things lived out in your lives and just to be thinking of your testimonies and um, how much I've learned even from you on, in these very things we're talking through. So uh, it's a privilege to teach and live among a body that's so eager to hear and apply the, the truth, as Pastor Brian said this morning. So uh, we just give God thanks for all these things. So as we get back into our series tonight, um, let's take a second and just get our bearings. We've had a week off, so uh, wading back in here. We opened up the series several weeks ago, I think about four or five weeks now. Uh, we opened the series up by observing that God's goal for every single one of us, for all of his kids, all of his children, is that we grow out of this spiritual infancy and into spiritual maturity, to reach spiritual adulthood, we might say. We all start there, we all start out immature, uh, but he doesn't want us to stay there. He wants us to become mature, and that means we're not perfect, uh, but we're stable. We are becoming consistent, we're becoming wise like Christ. And really the essence of maturity is that we consistently mimic Christ in our thinking, our desires, our, our actions, more and more over time, and that was, that was first week, session one. Then the second and third weeks, we looked really, we parked on God's role in this process of maturity. And we really saw from start to finish that God is sovereign. Praise God. He is sovereign in our maturation. That's really good news. He's the one who gave us life. He caused us to be born again into the family. He gave us faith. And then he's the one to, that's pledged to finish this work, to see it to completion. And then the last time we were together, 
we really began to consider our role in this process. Okay, so God's sovereign in it, and that's meant to motivate us to work hard in our role. And if you want to sum it all up, we, we said last time that we were together, what, we, we answered the question, what's our role in this process? What are we supposed to do in, our, in the growth process? And we really said it's pretty simple. It's hard, but it's simple. And our process is faith. Our role, our responsibility is to trust the Lord. It's the fight to trust Jesus above what we naturally think, above what we feel, above what we want. It's the fight to believe his promises. It's the fight to heed his warnings. It's the fight to yield to his instruction. And that is what we described as walking by faith. That's, that's Paul's idea of walking by faith and not walking by sight, right? Not by what we perceive or feel or even think in and of ourselves. So if that's our central responsibility, this fight of faith, we, we can break this down into some kind of tangible steps or, or stages maybe, just like tactical objectives. And that's, that's really where we're at for the rest of this series. We're, we're working through these kind of one by one. And last time we talked about where this fight of faith starts. And it starts by learning to respond rightly to our sin. Remember that? It's where it all starts. And that's because when we first start out in the Christian life, we start out as immature. There's no way around it. We are babes in Christ. And we're usually pretty ensnared in sin. We said last time, it's like we're caught in a bear trap out in the woods. And the first thing we need to do when we realize that we're in the trap is to get out of the trap. We got to get our, get our foot out, right? Instead of panicking, instead of despairing that we're in the trap, we have to remember there is hope. Christ has saved us and he's not going to leave us here in our besetting sins. And instead of just sort of sitting there in the woods, isolated, looking down at our, you know, looking down at our thing, we, what do we do? We call out for help, right? We call out for the spiritual among us, Galatians 6.1, who were given to us to restore us, to help us get out of that trap. But that means then that we've got to be honest and humble about our sin. We've got to own our sin. We have to take responsibility for it before the Lord. We're the reason we're in the trap. We can't shift the blame. We can't make excuses. And we've also got to look to Christ alone for his mercy and hope in him exclusively as this process begins. Only he can atone for our sins. We can't, we can't atone for them. And that's, the, that's, that's that initial objective. That's that initial fight of faith that we, we talked about last time. And the great news is that's at least half the battle. Humbling yourself before the Lord. Confessing your sin. It is excruciatingly hard to be humble, isn't it? It's excruciatingly difficult to own our sin. But when we do, we look down and our foot is out of the trap. Our foot is free. Humble confession, humble looking to Christ in faith is the key to unlocking the trap. And now, before we move on here, just want to acknowledge that having a free foot is a big deal, right? It's a big deal. To have a clean conscience after you've confessed your pornography is an immense blessing. To be restored after a massive conflict in your marriage is a joyful thing. That's great. It's worth praising God about those things. Have a free foot. 
But so many Christians stop here. They think the battle's over. They think they're free. And in one sense, they are, but the battle's not over. The journey's only begun, right? Your foot is free, but you are still in the woods, if we're going to keep the metaphor going. And those woods are full of more traps. And not just more traps, but the paths to those traps are very clear-cut and well-worn by you. They, they're well-lit. They appeal to you. They feel natural for you to walk in. And the path out, then, is hard. It takes work. It's unfamiliar. You've got to trust other people who know the way better than you. You've got to trust a map that seems to cut against everything in your experience. It goes against even sometimes what your own eyes see and perceive. So now the task is you've got to start building some navigation skills. You've got to increase your discernment. You've got to learn to navigate back out of the woods, back to the path of discipleship, back to the path of fruitful living. And now when it comes to getting out of these woods, or if we want to put it in more concrete terms, it's breaking the patterns of besetting sin in our lives, growing in maturity, we've really got one main threat. One, one threat? Seems like lots of threats. But there's really one main threat. The greatest threat we face isn't something that's external, like Satan or even the temptations themselves. They're, I mean, those are, those are threatening things. I'm not saying they're not a threat. They are. But the greatest threat we face is one that is internal. It's one that's inside us. And Paul describes this over in Ephesians 4. So if you would, go ahead and turn there. Ephesians chapter 4. It's going to be our anchor text for tonight and really for the next few weeks. Ephesians 4, and in verse 22, Ephesians 4.22, Paul describes the threat. And he describes it as the old self. The old self. He says we've got to put off your old self. Literally, he's talking about the old man. The old Adam, we might say. It's the nature that you were born into. The fallen nature that you inherited from Adam. And that nature is the nature that sins by default. It's inclined toward evil almost, we might say, naturally. So you can think of it really as the old humanity, the old you, the old Adamic nature. Now what's very interesting about this old self, as we're kind of waiting in here, is that this old self is not who you are anymore. We'll see this more in just a second as Paul describes this self, but it's not your fundamental identity anymore. We've learned a lot about this in Romans. Paul talks about it in Ephesians as well. And even back in Ephesians 2, if you went backwards to chapter 2, 
Paul said that you and I used to be dead in our sins. Dead. That's the old nature. Completely enslaved to our sin. That's the old you. But now, Ephesians 2 says, God has made you alive. He's made you alive. You've trusted Christ. You've been joined to Christ. You've trusted Christ. Been joined to him. God gave you a new nature, or as the Old Testament puts it, he gave you a new heart. He gave you a new capacity, a new receptivity to truth. And this old nature then is not your identity anymore. You are a new creation in Christ. And yet, this old edemic nature is still seeking to exert his influence over you. He won't win, ultimately. But it doesn't stop him from trying. He's been described as the dark passenger, you know, that sort of rides along with us in our Christian journey. It's not who we are, but he's present. Even though it's not your identity anymore, the old you is still within you, we might say, along for the ride, still trying to subvert and destroy your life. And that's why you still feel inclined towards sin. And sometimes why sin seems so much more natural than righteousness. Because the old you is still present and is still very influential at times. He's our greatest enemy, our greatest threat. And so that means if we're going to make progress in maturity, if we're going to grow up, if we're going to make our way out of the woods, so to speak, to maturity, we've got to learn to deal with the old self. And we have to learn how to do that. And thankfully for us, Paul gives us three very basic and yet very clear life-giving instructions about how to do this in Ephesians 4. And like I said, this is going to be our anchor text over these next few weeks. And we're going to work our way through each of these instructions that we find here. We'll take our time. We'll look at lots of illustrations. And as we cement these in our minds, as we begin practicing these instructions, continue practicing these instructions for many of you, over time we're going to be well on our way to growing in this, this grace of maturity that the Lord's given to us. So let's look at the text tonight. Read it with me in, in verse 22. Or we'll pick it up in verse 20. He says, but that's not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Two, number one, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And number two, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And number three, to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So here in the text, Paul gives us these big three instructions. These instructions that they're going to lead us out of the woods, if we're going to stay with our metaphor, they'll, that's the way out. It's the way out of the woods and into maturity as we learn to put off the old self, to renew our minds, and to put on the new self. So we're going to spend the next few weeks looking at each one of these, and as you're going to see, they, they really belong together. I mean, I kind of went back and forth on how to present this to you. It's, it's almost better to present them all at once uh, because it's really a package deal. But 
because I'm wordy. And we're going to do one at a time, okay? And, uh, and, and hope that we can keep it all together in our minds. All right, tonight we're going to focus in on this first instruction, this instructions to put off the old self, or as I'm, I'm calling it, as you can see, that trashing the old self. And this continues our fight of faith, right? The fight of faith began in responding rightly to our sin, and now it continues by, by fighting to trash the old self. All right, so this is, we could call it practice number one, trashing the old self. And this first instruction that Paul gives here is literally learning to put off the old self. That's what he, what he tells us to do here. Put it off. So that raises a question. What does this mean? What's he getting at when he tells us to put off this old self? Well, it helps to know that Paul's using a metaphor here a clothing metaphor in particular. And when you put off a piece of clothing, he's not talking about like, you know, putting it off as in like you take it off and you hang it back up in your closet. This is what you do when a shirt is ruined. It stains so badly, there's nothing left to do except throw it away. Some of the wives are nudging their husbands right now. Okay, don't do that. Wait till after. If you're a parent in here, you know this intuitively, right? Especially when you're raising kids in the Virginia red clay. Sometimes clothes just get ruined in that stuff. There's nothing left to do except throw it away. You can't spot treat it. Can't hang it back up. Can't bleach it. Just trash it. It's so corrupted, so useless, so unrecoverable, the only thing left to do is trash it. And that's what Paul's saying about our old self. That's what we have to do. Now, Paul's going to continue on in this verse, and he's going to continue elaborating this old self. He's going to unpack it for us. And he's doing that, I think, because he knows that if, if we're going to trash it, if we're going to put it away, if we're going to refuse the influence, we might say, of the old self, we have to see the old self very clearly. So he's going to go on to describe the old self in more detail. So we're going to be properly motivated to put it off. And as we're going to see, there will be some very helpful and practical implications that are just kind of flowing out of even his description of the old self here. And we're going to draw out some of these implications. And that will help us actually learn what it means to trash or put off the old self. Now, we've said this a couple times, but it's worth pointing out that, that one of the first things Paul says about this, this nature is that it's old. It's our old self, meaning it belongs to the old creation. To that old order of things that's passing away. And because we're united to Christ, the old self is, like we said, it's not fundamentally who we are anymore. Paul says exactly that in his next description he says the old self, did you notice, belongs, he says, to our former manner of life. What he's talking about there is our lives as unbelievers. It's not who we are anymore in Christ. It's not our fundamental identity now. It's who we used to be, but it's not who we are now. It's how we used to think. It's what we used to value before our lives were oriented around Christ. It's how we used to live. 
And what we have to see about, our, about ourselves, what we have to see if we're going to mature, is that this old self that's consumed with anger or lust or fear or depression, we have to see that that is not your fundamental identity anymore. And the glorious news about what Christ has done for us is that he has united us to himself. Our natures were once completely dead, completely enslaved in sin, but God made us alive together with Christ. And he goes on to say in Ephesians 2 that he seated us with him in the heavenly places. Somebody came to you. They told you about Jesus. Maybe a mom, pastor, friend, coworker. They came to you and they, they told you the news about Christ. And God turned the lights on in your heart. You saw your sin, you heard the shepherd's voice, and you trusted him. And that's because God made you alive. It's because he gave you a new heart, a new nature, a nature that's alive and responsive to him. He's joined you to Christ himself. And that is who you are now. You are a new creature destined to inherit the new creation that's coming. Your sins are forgiven. You're clothed with his righteousness, not your own. That is the new you, we might say. The real you, the true you, we might say the Christ you. And it's true of you no matter how much you are struggling with sin. You catch that? No matter how difficult the struggle is, that does not change your fundamental identity. So you're saying, okay, I got it. What does this have to do with trashing the old self, putting off the old nature? Well, the fact that the old me is not who I am anymore, this implies something very practical. It implies that we have to, we might say, dissociate with the old identity, right? We can't re-identify with our old selves. We can't keep on identifying with, with who we were instead of who we are today. Or if we use Paul's words in Romans 6, we have to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You know why? Because you are. Now that you're in Christ, you can't keep telling yourself, I'm just an anxious person. I'm just a, I guess I'm just a gay person because I have these desires. I guess I'm just an, an angry person. You used to be that, but that's not who you are anymore. Now you are in Christ. And as we're going to see, you've been given a brand new set of clothes as a gift. Yours for the taking, yours for putting on. And you have to start thinking of yourself as a new creature in Christ. A new creature who still struggles with sin. A new creature who struggles with fear. A new creature who struggles with lust. A new creature who struggles with fill in the blank. But it's not your identity anymore. You're not a sinner trying to become a saint. 
opposite. You are a saint already in Christ. You are a saint who still struggles with sin. That's a massive difference, and we have to see it. Why? Why is that important? When we sink our teeth down into this reality, into this identity, the real identity we have in Jesus, the hope kicks in. You can already feel it, right? Even if you're ensnared in a particular sin tonight, even as I'm saying these things. Wow. Man, if I could just think like that. There's real hope for change if I'm a fundamentally different person now. If I'm no different than before, if sin is still my fundamental identity, then there really is no hope for change. I start defeated and I end defeated. I'm destined for sin. There's no strength for the fight. There's no perseverance. We throw in the towel very easily. And then what ends up happening, you start interpreting your sins as evidence against you, right? You start saying things like, see, there it is again. I'm afraid again. I'm fearing again. Panic attack again. I'm not any different. I'm just an anxious person like I've always been, like I always will be. That's a lie. You struggle with anxiety, yes, but it's not your identity. So what would this sound like in the moment to dissociate, to refuse to identify with your sin? It sounds something like like this. Father, I am really struggling not to panic right now. It seems like I've been anxious almost constantly over the last few weeks. It is so discouraging. I'm fighting it, but it feels like I'm not changing. I'm so tempted to think I'm just an anxious person. I'm just constantly afraid, constantly fretting all the time. And I'm tempted to wonder right now if I should even fight it. But Lord, your word says this is not true. I might be dominated by fear in this moment but it is not fundamentally who I am anymore. Christ, you have laid hold of me. You have given me a new nature, a nature that is able to trust you. I'm not sure how to stop being afraid right now, so I'm asking for your help. But what I do know is that it will not always be this way. I will not always be this way. I'm not an anxious person anymore because I'm in Christ, and you are working in me. You're gonna teach me to trust you over time. I'm a new creature, Lord, and you're going to help me learn to live like it eventually because that's what you said. That is dissociating from your identity, your old identity. It's refusing to identify with the old self. A prayer that believes that you are a different person because Christ says you are. So we've got to realize that the old self's no longer who we are if we're going to put it off. But that's not all. We've also got to recognize something else. If we're going to trash the old self. We've got to see that our old self is actually so corrupted, so soiled, that trashing it is the only option. That's why Paul continues on in this description of the old self by telling us, he says, it's corrupted. You see that? 
the old self, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, it's not who you are anymore, and, here it is, is corrupt. It's corrupt. Our old self is contaminated because it's characterized by sin. Our old selves get angry. We gossip. We grow resentful. We get envious. We tear down. We exalt ourselves. We disrespect our parents. We're lazy. We lust. We judge. We lie. And the list just goes on and on. And Paul says here that is the evidence that our old self is thoroughly contaminated and unable to be salvaged. There's only one thing you do with something like that, and it's trash it. And so this implies then, if, if we're going to trash the old self, then we, we have to see the corruption of the old self. We've got to recognize that the old self is corrupt. We have to see how corrupting something like fear or lust or anger really is. We've got to see the dangers of the things that we're engaged in, how destructive they can be. We've got to see what's really at stake when we're constantly complaining. We've got to see what's at stake with our patterns of resentment that we're kind of content to sort of live with. So, so why is Paul reminding us here that our old natures are so corrupt? Well, because we're tempted to think that the sins that come from our old natures aren't that bad. That our sinful impulses aren't that dangerous. They don't actually need to be put off. We don't need to trash our old selves. That seems a little bit harsh. Can we just tolerate our old self? Can we rehabilitate it? Well, the answer is that's obviously no, and, and this touches on what we talked about last time, how we're all tempted to think our sin's not that bad. We minimize it, we make excuses for it, we label it with something else, less severe, makes us feel better about ourselves, <laughs> feel better about our, our corrupt old selves. But if we're going to obey this command to put off the old self, then we have to know that our sin really is a severe corruption and it's worth eliminating. Nothing good can come from letting the old self linger in your life. Nothing good. It's like the leak in your house. You don't think it's that bad. So you let it linger. And then you realize there's black mold everywhere between the walls. Everybody's sick. What's been helpful for me is to actually do a study on the sin issue that I'm seeing in my life. If I'm struggling with resentment, let's say, study out what the Bible actually says about it, especially about the dangers of what I'm engaged in. And often when we're counseling people who struggle with various things, say like pornography, when we're counseling folks that struggle with something like that, this is one of the first assignments we'll have them do. Go to the scriptures, give you a list of passages, and I want you to study out how serious your lust is from scripture. 
I want you to load in your minds the dangers and the warnings. The stakes are much higher than you think. And the same is true for any struggle, not just lust. If we think that our sin's like a little crumb, you know, like a little crumb on a, like a little piece of checks that your kid left or whatever on the floor, then it's easy to sweep that under the rug. You know, just kind of. But if you see your sin as a decaying skunk, you're not going to want to sweep that thing under the rug. You want to get the skunk out. And so we're going to work hard to put off that old self the more clearly we see it. So think about a sin pattern, the setting sin pattern that plagues you right now. How hard, answer this in your heart, scale of 1 to 10, have you pursued studying out what the Bible says about that? Have you looked at all the Bible has to say about that sin pattern? Have you looked at the dangers of it? About the warnings against it? And if you're counseling somebody, discipling somebody, that's a great assignment. And if you haven't done this and you're struggling in a sin area, you certainly should. It'll be an eye-opening and motivating experience for you. So what would this sound like if we were recognizing the corruption of, of, our, of a particular sin pattern in our life? We're going to work the, the anxiety example tonight, okay? I don't have anybody in mind, okay, on this example. So just want to get that out there. Here's what it would sound like. Lord, I know that I'm tempted to minimize this fear in my heart. I say things like, oh, I'm just so stressed. Or I'll blame it on my circumstances. Half the time, I don't even think of it as sin against you. But Lord, your command to me is to be anxious for nothing. Philippians 4, 6. It truly is a corruption, and it's causing lots of problems in my life. I often hurt others because I'm afraid. I won't take risks because I'm afraid. I'm, also, I'm indecisive because I'm afraid. And ultimately, Lord, I am just not trusting you. Please forgive me. Help me cultivate courage. That's what it would sound like to recognize that your sin is, is actually corrupt. It's not good. Now, if we're, we're going to get back to our text, you'll notice that Paul doesn't stop with talking about the corruption of the old self. He pushes it further to show us where this corruption comes from, or maybe why we're, why, why we're corrupt. He says the corrupting sinful behavior is fueled by something deeper. And this is absolutely crucial. Okay? So if you walk away with one thing tonight, it's what, I'm, what we're about to unpack. Okay, This is the... Got a snooze? Come back. Come back to us right now, because um, this is crucial. Our old selves, Paul says, are corrupt through deceitful desires. Through deceitful desires, how the ESV translates it. If you want it more literally, it would be the desires of deceit. I don't know if you're a Bible writer, but if you, you should write in your Bibles, but if you want to jot that in the margin there, the desires of deceit. Or if you're NASB, you don't even have to, because it says the lusts of deceit. That's how it translates that, the lusts of deceit. Now, that's a very interesting phrase. And it's very important we slow down to make sure that we understand what Paul is saying here. And he's, 
He could be saying one of two things. Paul could be saying that the wayward desires of the old self, that those desires deceive us. That's how the ESV takes it. They, just, they translate this as the deceitful desires, implying that it's the desires themselves that are doing the deceiving. They're the ones that are deceptive. This, that does make sense, and it's certainly a possibility here, but I think it makes much more sense to understand this phrase in sort of the opposite way, which is this, the second option here. The desires of deceit could be interpreted as the desires that spring up from the deceit. In other words, the deception is the source for the desire. And that's a, an equally viable grammatical option. The desires themselves come from deception. The deceit, in other words, produces the desire. So then that means that deception and not desire is our fundamental problem. Now, not only does this make sense here in, con in this context, but when you pan out, it jives really nicely with the rest of Scripture, especially Genesis 3 and the account of what happened with, with the woman. Do you remember the progression of what happened with Eve? Where does it start? Genesis 3 starts with Eve's interaction with the snake. And as she's talking with the snake, she's subtly deceived. That's where it starts. Her deception then caused a wrong assessment of the tree. Remember? The text says in Genesis 3 that she thought that, the, that it was good. Good? The fruit is poison. Just a few verses earlier, the Lord said you would surely die. The deceit has produced a wrong assessment of this tree, of this fruit. And because she was deceived, because she's perceiving something evil as something good, what happened next? Well, the text says she desired it. She craved it. She saw that it was to be desired to make one wise, the text says. Her deception produced a craving, a desire. The deception first, producing the desire for the forbidden fruit. Then, the desire leads to something else, right? The transgression. When she took the fruit and ate it. Her taking of the fruit then, and the corruption that followed, was not the ultimate problem. Go further upstream. The ultimate problem was her deception. And Eve knew it too. Because when she was confronted by the Lord, listen to what she says in Genesis 3.13. The serpent deceived me and I ate. She recognized she had been fundamentally deceived and that's why she both craved and ultimately ate the fruit. Now, if we come back to Ephesians 4, Paul's saying our old nature, our old Edemic nature is a deceived nature. 
That's what we inherited. The old you thinks it knows what is best. And because that old you is deceived, it leads you to crave things that are corrupt. And that means, if you're going to put it simply, you cannot trust the old you. You can't trust it. So when it comes to putting off the old self, we have to distrust its desires. We've got to distrust its desires. Now, you're probably thinking, yeah, it makes sense, but (laughs) we intuitively trust our desires. We feel things deeply. But even though we do, we cannot trust them. We can't trust our own assessments. Why? Because our desires, stemming from the old self, are fundamentally deceived. Deceived thoughts are churning up those deceived desires. And why else would we crave things that we know lead to death? So that means no matter how strongly you feel certain things, if those desires are not rooted in truth, then you cannot trust that they are reliable. You've got to be very skeptical of your own heart. No matter how right something seems to you, if it contradicts God's word, it cannot be trusted. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Proverbs 16, 25. All right, so let's work this out. Let's say you just, you feel like you're not in love with your spouse anymore. It's been a slow leak over the last decade. But now there's just, there's just nothing left in the tank. In your mind, you're, you're done. You're, you're, you're miserable in the marriage. You think that it makes it miserable for your spouse, too, because you're miserable. Your kids are basically out of the house now. Isn't it time for you to finally be happy? And then somebody else comes in the picture, and it, and it, and it feels intoxicating to be with this person. How could this be wrong, you think? God wants me to be happy, doesn't he? What's going on there? A lot of things are going on there, and have been going on for a long time. But in particular, the desires of the old self are burning hot, and they are fueled by lies. Your old self thinks you'll be happier and more fulfilled by disobeying God. By just deeper truth. The old self thinks that your spouse is the problem, not you. The old self says the answer is to get out. You want the other person. But you cannot trust your desires. No matter how strongly you feel them, You have to be skeptical of yourself. You have to be skeptical of your desires. Go back to our analogy of the woods. If you're going to think you know the way out, but if it contradicts the map, you're not going to get out. 
If it contradicts the person who's guiding you, you have to throw it away. You cannot trust your instincts. You've got to distrust your old self because your old self is deceived. How about the Christian that struggles with homosexual desires? Or the Christian that's biologically male but feels more feminine? What do you do with that? It's the old nature still exerting influence, thinking it knows what is best, what will make you the most happy, what will be the most life-giving. But your old nature is a deceived nature. You cannot trust it, no matter how strongly you feel. Your feelings are not a reliable guide to what is true. Now, do you know what else this implies? This implies that the old you is constantly talking to you. Underneath our sin patterns is a reel, like a movie reel, a reel of, of thinking a reel of meditating and or evaluating and assessing. And it's coming from the old self. It's rooted in lies. And so if we're going to put off the old self, we need to get our thoughts out in the open, as, as difficult as they might be to face. We need to just kind of smoke out those, those thoughts. We've got to reveal the deception, we could say. We put off the old self by revealing the deceived thoughts as lies. Smoke out what's really going on. How do I do that? What's that? What does that mean? How do I, if I'm deceived, how do I know that? I, I mean, I'm not. I what's the essence of deception? You don't know it, right? Like you're, you're just, you're walking off. How do I, how do I know? How do I smoke out my deception? Well, you know what the telltale sign is. The sin. In your life, <laughs> you just what the eating of the fruit, the transgression. Just go back upstream. You know you're deceived because you're sinning. So if you work backwards from your sin patterns, you can trace back to the deception. So that means if you're, if you're trying to discern the lies you're believing. You want to start with those besetting areas of sin and with the circumstances that surround those areas. We all have them. And I often describe this as, as isolating the circumstance. Since we've really hammered that fear tonight, we're just going to stay there, keep talking about it, okay? You've got to start with isolating the circumstances of your fear. If that's besetting you. So when are you most afraid? When, what, what happened that, that triggered that fear? How were you tempted to be afraid? How did you respond? And I like to, to write these things out. I'm, I'm kind of a, I'm a writer, uh, journaler. Um, I don't know about you, but it just helps me kind of get my thoughts in order because I yeah, it just helps. I'm not, I'm not the clearest thinker just in my brain. Uh, I kind of have to get it out in writing, especially if I'm emotional, which I usually am if I'm in a sin pattern, you know, I'm battling. So getting this out on paper is helpful. And isolating the circumstances of, of fear. So what's this look like? Okay, let's, let's say you're a college student. 
and you just started dating that girl that you've been interested in this whole past year. Great news. But now you find yourself constantly anxious, way more than you were before. Just the other night, you went into a tailspin. So what happened? We're isolating the circumstance. What happened? Well, it all started with that text you sent, that dumb, goofy text you sent to the girl, right? She didn't respond after you sent it, trying to be funny, but now you're, now you're worried. You panicked. What if she thinks I'm dumb? Maybe she's second-guessing whether or not she'd be dating me. No, 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 no. You know, you kind of go down the reel. I'm a shepherd of college students, okay? Pretty soon, if you're not careful, you can be in full panic mode. Feel sick to your stomach. You don't want to do anything. You just want her to respond. You kind of sit there kind of looking at your phone every other second. That's the circumstance, okay? You've detailed it out. You've isolated it. And maybe this isn't even the first time you've sent a dumb text, right? Maybe this is a pattern of, of just freaking out when she's not responding. Maybe this has become a pattern of jumping to the worst-case scenario with her. But now you've isolated the circumstances, and you say, okay, that's clear. Like, this is the Lord's revealing that I'm, I'm anxious, and I'm sure I'm deceived here. You've got to take it one step further now to, to start smoking out that deception. You know it's there because the fear is there. You just got to kind of get it out in the open. And I call this capturing your thoughts. So you pause and you ask yourself, what was I saying to myself? What was the old self saying when the plane was crashing, right? When I was like starting, when I was in full panic mode. Now, at first, if you're new to something like this, you might kind of push back on me a little bit here. And you think, well, I'm anxious. I'm not, I'm not saying anything to myself. I've had people, <laughs> had people tell me this before. I'm saying anything. It's like, oh, yes, you are. Uh, you definitely are. So let's go back. And this week when you're anxious, I want you to start writing down all the things. Just kind of step outside of yourself and look into what you're saying because there, there's, there's stuff churning there. I send them back that next time and so, that, so that the next time they panic, I send them back to pay attention to what they're saying to themselves. And usually I make them write it down. There it is again. And I do that so you can look at it. So you can evaluate it. That's what we'll talk about next week. So if our, if our young man were to take a second and he were to ask what he was saying in the moment of panic, it might sound something like this. Oh, no. I messed up. I've messed this up. She's going to break up with me, and I'm going to miss out on the opportunity of a lifetime. My life's going to be so lame without her. Not just that, but, but what, am I gonna, what are my friends going to think? She dumps me after one week. That's the real. And those are full of lies. Lies are churning up all kinds of desires in his heart. That reel is laced with deception. So the next thing he's going to need to do is after he's captured those thoughts, he's just looking at them face to face on the paper, is step outside himself 
and begin bringing truth to bear on those thoughts. And now we're already bleeding over into Paul's second major instruction in Ephesians 4, and that's his instruction to renew our minds. We're out of time tonight, so we're going to put the bookmark here. We're going to pick it back up at this point next week, but, but before we close out here, let me encourage you to think right now about an area in your own life, an area that you feel discouraged about. Just think about it right now. You got it in your mind? Why do you think that you've not had much traction in that area? Go back through these points. Do you identify with that struggle? More than you identify with your identity in Christ? Do you constantly view yourself as just a lazy person or an angry person or an anxious person? Rather than a new creature in Christ? Have you taken the time to actually study out the corruptions of that of that sin pattern, the dangers of it, so that you could see it as it truly is? Or have you minimized its significance and just decided to kind of live with it, you know? I'm just going to live with the dead skunk in the room. But most likely, though, if there was anything new for you tonight, it was probably this concept of capturing your thoughts. And so I would encourage you, if this is new, to keep a little journal in that besetting area, keep a little journal of what you're saying to yourself in those moments. Whether it's fear, anger, lust, complaining, just write it out. Write out what you're saying to yourself. And then come back to it later and ask this question. Is what I'm saying true? Is what I'm saying true? Am I telling myself things that are true and biblical, or is this the deceived old nature speaking? See if you can discern the lies. I bet you can. But if you can't, don't be discouraged. Next week, you'll be even more primed as we get into Paul's second major practice or his second major instruction, which is to renew our minds. We're going to talk all about that, look at it very practically. But this sounds like a lot of work, because it is. And this is the way out of the woods, though. This is our part. This is what God is energizing us for and has equipped us for. It's our part to play in this maturation process. And as we've said, we've got to fight by faith to trash the old self. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you just for the clarity of your word. And we're thankful that you've not abandoned us in this process. Just preparing these notes for tonight and just rejoicing the fact that even though the old self is the dark passenger, it is not who I am anymore. And he will not have the final word. So we are thankful about that tonight, Lord, and I pray that our fellowship would be sweet and that you would motivate us to continue to, to make slow and steady progress on this path to maturity. And we ask it in Jesus' name.